You're listening to Drek FM. Welcome to another episode of Literary Treks, our show dedicated to Star Trek's literary universe. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is Matthew Rushing. Matthew, how is everything in snowy Dallas, Texas? <laughs> well, actually, it's uh, it's going well. Um, I did uh, have a snow adventure yesterday. I had to do jury duty here, and so I got up in the morning, got dressed, and, and uh, was on my way to the train station. It was snowing like crazy, and um, the train station is actually about a mile away from the courthouse, so I had to walk in the snow to the courthouse. Um, so that's my snow adventure. Unfortunately, by the time that I got out of jury duty, which I didn't get picked this time, so um, thank the maker, and... It had all melted um, because it's Dallas, uh, so it was just cold and wet instead of being, you know, all nice and white. So, yes, that's well, that's my snow adventure. <laughs> I understand you avoided getting picked by quoting your favorite Star Trek authors in response to every question asked to you. Yeah, I did. Um, I was actually reading the uh, Destiny series while I was waiting, and then I just kept quoting really sad and... Um, depressing lines from Picard in that series. And they're like, dude, this is not the guy we want on our jury. So yeah, thanks Picard and your depression. Right. And, and wearing your Starfleet uniform helped a little bit as well. You're like, you're like Lemon on 30 Rock when she shows up with her Princess Leia outfit on and her Playboy magazines in hand when she has to go in for jury duty selection. Exactly. Except I showed up in an Ahura dress so I think I took it maybe one step further. Um, but yeah, it worked out great. I didn't get picked. So, Did you wear the tall black Uhura boots also? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the nice, uh, I don't, you know, bloomers, uh, just so uh, we're not being inappropriate. So, <laughs> I need a photo of this jury selection that you were right. Well, uh, yes. Luckily, you know, in a courthouse, there's no there's no photos allowed um, except for on camera. And I've already paid off the guards to make sure that that surveillance well, tape never leaves the building. So, well, sure, but you know, the sketch artist drew a great picture of you. Damn, I forgot. <laughs> forgot about that, <laughs> didn't you? All right. Well, let's jump into our book news this week. And after news, we have a great interview coming up with author David Mack. So hang on for that. But before we get into that, let's talk a little bit about Greg Cox and his new book coming out, The Weight of Worlds. Now, this one reminded me when I first read the description. Do you remember the Voyager episode with Jason Alexander where he was part of a think tank? I think the episode is actually called Think Tank. Uh, the description here of this book is the Ephrata Institute, that is an intellectual think tank at the outer fringes of the final frontier. 
Yeah, I do remember that episode. Uh, one, I remember thinking that Jason Alexander really pulled me out of the episode. Oh, did he? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, just because you're like, oh, it's Jason Alexander. Um, yeah. You know, automatically, it before anything else, uh, even though, and he kind of just looked like a really large, hairy, sweaty Jason Alexander. So it wasn't like they did a ton of makeup. Um, no offense to Jason Alexander. I love you. You're awesome. He's not going to listen to this podcast. It doesn't matter. Um, but yes, <laughs> I, I do so. remember that that episode. And, and so, yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because it made me think of that too. Uh, that the idea that this is some kind of think tank that they run across. Um, and they apparently seem to be worried about some kind of alien crusaders who will stop at nothing to rescue the universe from its myriad of beliefs. So it does look like that this book is going to have quite a lot to do with religion in a very TOS way. And so I'm, I'm going to be interested to read this. Uh, I'll say I'm a little trepidatious about it, um, but I'm always willing to give anything a shot. So it'll be interesting to see the way Kirk deals with that. Well, it sounds like, and of course I'm only speculating based on the description here, but some of the terminology that's used, some of the description here, it sounds like he may be taking on the the idea of religious zealotry that goes to an extreme where some group is trying to impose their very, very strict beliefs on the wider community. So like you said, again, it may be very much a TOS take on religion as opposed to a DS9 take, which you know we've been talking about on our other show, The Orb, a little bit. But uh, it looks like an interesting one, and I love the cover art on this particular cover that they've put out. It's a beautiful illustration of uh, Kirk, really Spock, is. and Sulu. Yeah, it, it's um, it's very epic, um, and it almost feels retro. Uh, the it cover does. art, yeah. and so uh, I do really like that. I like, um, as we talked about last week about the Devil's Bargain. Um, I really like that they're kind of um, doing their best to make these books. Uh, stand apart from each other and really putting some time and effort, I think, into the cover art. And, and to me, you know, honestly, sometimes you can judge a book by its cover. Um, there are a few of my favorite series I just picked up while working at Barnes & Noble because I liked the art. So um, it can definitely do that. And I, I think you're right. You know, uh, there's a lot to be said for uh, discussions about uh, religion and uh, religious fanaticism that creates... Um, chaos and so yeah yeah i think this will be very interesting this is going to be coming out um march 26th so right at the end of march into april and of course uh your reviewer here will be reviewing this book uh when it comes out so uh, but yeah this one comes out uh i can't believe it i'm just gonna say this but in a couple of months so one other thing in the description here i feel like greg cox stole a theme from my own personal life for this book though he talks about this group the crusade they are armed with what he calls weaponized gravity now for years i've just had a really hard time holding on to objects Uh, i drop things way more often than any normal person should (laughs) i feel like some weaponized gravity has been used against me personally on a small scale here on earth uh, do i get royalties from this i don't know well um you i think you're gonna have to talk to your wife about that 
<laughs> she's actually been using weaponized gravity against you. Um, we're 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 friends, and she told me that that that's what she's been doing. Um, <laughs> Is that and, it? And uh, yeah, she just actually tapes it and puts it on YouTube. You're actually really popular in China. <laughs> <laughs> things things are making so much more sense to me now. All right, oh, well. Goodness. Well, since you've been doing that, I think it's time for me to hurl an insult your way and say, your mother has a smooth forehead. Oh, how dare you? I learned that from the next book that we have up here, How to Speak Klingon. I loved that this is coming out. Number one, um, you know, this is going to be in a size that you can carry around like any great phraseology book. So for your next trip to Kronos with Worf and Alexander, uh, you can just pull this out whenever you need it. And just in case they're not there and your UT stops working, that's Universal Translator for those who aren't in the know. And just pull out when you need to insult a Klingon. Um, you know, uh, this is this is going to be the thing that you're going to use a lot, I think. Um, because, well, too, Klingon insults just sound better it's because they have that really harsh guttural language and uh so yeah you've got insults you've got toasts such as uh today is a good day to die um you know passport my fist is my passport which just sounds (laughs) like something that chuck norris would say and so um yeah this is going to be a great book coming out in uh, april i like the compliments that they have in there too you bludgeon divinely (laughs) <laughs> can't you just picture Worf saying that to Janzia you know they've <laughs> they've just had their big workout and he looks into her eyes and says you bludgeon divinely <laughs> I, I can see that um, I think this is going to be the perfect companion to Lonely Planets Kronos because you need both a phrase book and a travel guide you know as you visit the Klingon homeworld Exactly. And honestly, I have to say, at least that I've heard, I haven't read it yet, but you've never read Fifty Shades of Grey until you've read it in the original Klingon. So you'll probably want to pick that up on your way there because you're going to want to be in the know when you get to Kronos. All the Klingon wives are talking about it. (laughs) This reminded me in a way of, and I don't know if it's a repackaging or not. They do talk about here having a built-in sound module that you know helps you hear the pronunciation, which is quite useful. I remember back in the 1990s, very early 1990s, I believe it was, when the Klingon Dictionary came out. When, of course, Mark Okran had been creating the Klingon language for a lot of it for the next generation. And they put out the Klingon Dictionary and it was kind of cool, it was kind of useful, but of course, you couldn't actually hear the pronunciation of these words. I believe later they released it as an audiobook, and then you could actually hear someone saying them the way that they should be pronounced. And there have been a number of different Klingon language books published over the years, and I'll be interested to see how much new material is in here versus how much they're just kind of repackaging what has come before it so we'll find out about that when it comes out on april 23rd well and what's really nice is it it has illustrated scenarios to set the scene to offer additional useful phrases and so that's nice too 
um, to kind of give you a picture of what, you know, they're talking about. So that's really nice. Last year, when GameForge was working on the Star Trek Infinite Space browser-based game, which subsequently was canceled, the they were doing a series of videos on YouTube as a promotional thing, and they had the... I forget the exact name, but it's essentially the Klingon Language Institute in Germany. And they actually had a, a Klingon um, on the video giving you useful phrases. Each one had a theme. It may have been food and drink. It may have been asking for directions. <laughs> uh, and they were pretty short. I forget now exactly. I want to say they were between like five to six minutes each. So there has been a fair bit of, of exposure for the Klingon language in the past couple of years. Well, and what's weird, you know, even if you use Klingon in Germany, uh, people respond really well. Um, but I think it's just because German and Klingon are very similar in their <laughs> syntax. So? So. <laughs> See, the thing for me with German is, for me, German sounds almost like English. It has the same cadence. You know, they're so closely related. If you don't actually listen to the words... The flow of German and the cadence and intonation is so similar to English. I don't, I don't quite get the Klingon feel from it myself, but I know what you mean about <laughs> some of the, the harsher sounds in German. Yes, so. yes. I, I was just teasing to all our German listeners. <laughs> I apologize. Sorry, Renee. I'm sure you're listening exactly. to this right now. All right. Well, let's go on to our next book here, and this one is David R. George the Third's. Allegiance in Exile. Yeah, this one uh, is coming out at the end of this month, and so I wanted to highlight it. It'll be my next review. Um, and, and this one just has a really interesting uh, blurb. Uh, you know, the, the Enterprise comes across this beautiful green uh, world that's got fertile soil, it's got uh, temperate climate, it's pretty much the textbook Minshara-class planet, and uh, teeming with life in their scans show that there aren't any life signs, um, but there are refined metals, uh, especially metals that you would see in spacefaring uh, for a spacefaring race, and a lone city. Um, and so uh, they don't know, though, what's happened to all the inhabitants. So Kirk leads the landing party, of course, and uh, they are hoping to get answers. And they discover that there's a city in ruins, it's covered by dust, um, it says utter, utterly bereft of life. And so, um, but they indicate that this is no ancient metropolis, it says, and it's been deserted for only a year. Uh, so the idea, you know, what what in the world has happened? Um, and, and with these ruins, it says, being too far from either the Klingon or the Romulan empires, the Enterprise crew can only wonder who could have done this. And then I saw today... Uh, David had put on his uh, Facebook page the first line, the way David Mack had given his first line for his new book, and it says, The ground rumbled a moment before the missile lanced through the air towards the clearing at the edge of the vacant city. Bum, bum, Very bum. mysterious. Yes. And so there's, yeah, should... there's this graveyard of, of ships, like an ancient spaceport, and... That reminded me, my first visual was from the A Time To series from The Next Generation in the uh, the first couple of books when they're trying to, you know, set up the Enterprise crew for a fall. 
And there's that whole graveyard of ships that they, they spend so much of the story in. Of course, this sounds like it's actually on the ground, kind of like a, a Mos Eisley or some kind of spaceport here. Yeah, the, the I you know, just speculating, I got the idea that, you know, this is kind of, uh, you know, there's only one city on this planet, but it doesn't seem like, um, you know, that the first thing that came to mind was Mos Eisley, that kind of, you know, backwater thing. But this this place actually looks like it or sounds like it's a really nice um, city, nice planet. This this is the kind of place you'd want to be. So I'm really interested to see what in the world could have caused this kind of, uh, you know, destruction to this vacant city. Well, there is that other line in here. These are not the ships you're looking for. And as they tell Kirk that <laughs> to kind of throw him off the trail, we'll just have mm. to wait and find out how he handles that, what he uncovers in his exploration. Yeah, who knew that uh, Kirk was so weak in the force? Just a weak-minded <laughs> fool. So Yeah, that's not what the yeomans tell us, but... Yeah, he I, he's definitely persuasive, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our book wrap-up very quick this week. Uh, just a few books for you there. Uh, we do have a couple things in comics. And the first one is Countdown to Darkness. And Matthew, we want to just speculate what we think we might see as Countdown to Darkness kicks off. Because we've gotten a little bit more information about the plot of the film over the past couple of weeks as the synopsis came out, revised synopsis, actors have been talking to different media outlets as well. Nothing too concrete yet, but what we do know is that there's this guy, John Harrison, who comes back to Earth, is bent on revenge, starts attacking London and San Francisco, apparently. But we don't really know what he's so upset about. We don't really know who he is. Uh, we don't know what is the lead up to the story, although it does appear that quite a bit of time has passed between the end of the 2009 movie and the start of this one. And I don't mean time as in it took them four years to film it, but I mean time as in in that universe, it appears that Kirk and his crew have been on the Enterprise for a number of years at this point. So what do you think you might see when this Countdown to Darkness kicks off? Yeah, you know, well... Kirk is on the front of this cover, um, and so I'm wondering if each of the covers will be representative of kind of what you'll get in the actual comic, if it'll be kind of Kirk-centric the first yeah. time, and then, you know, the next one is Uhura, then the next one is Spock. I don't really know what to expect. I am kind of hoping that they will give us some... Um, information on what's happened between the last film and this film and and not just just the build-up to um the newest movie because if there's you know kind of a you know two three year gap that's a long time for a lot of things to have happened i mean you know kirk was originally on a five-year mission in the, the original series so you know three years is a long time and and so now do you think that Keenzer grew any taller during that period between the last movie and this one well uh let's hope that he hasn't been taking performance enhancing uh drugs or you know um height drugs uh those are really dangerous um 
I'm pretty sure that Bones has warned him multiple times about that. So, um, yeah, let's hope not. Let's uh, hope not. If he is, I, I'd hate to think that this is just going to be the after school special series where it's all about don't do drugs because look what happened to Keenzer. <laughs> the more you know. So I, I I like your theory about the covers anyway, at least with the first one, because I could see with Kirk being on the cover of the first issue that it could pick up right after the last movie and we could see a little bit about the evolution of him as a commanding officer of the ship and as he gets com- comfortable with the crew and gets comfortable being a captain. Now, the second cover is Uhura, I believe, correct? Yes. So I don't quite know where that would go. And, you know, the reason I don't know where that could go is largely because of the way that they really didn't give Uhura very much to do in the original series and in the original series movies. And so I'm thinking about this in terms of movie storyline how would they develop her? Now, we have seen in the ongoing comics up to this point that they have given Uhura quite a bit more to do, and they've really put her more in a take-charge action role as a woman on the ship compared to how she was treated in that 1960s mentality of TOS. So we could see, you know, maybe she's going to have a much more important role on the ship. Maybe she's going to have a much more integral role in into darkness. We have seen those shots of her, action shots of her where she's fighting Harrison. We've seen the shots of her uh, with the phaser in what looks like a very frightening scene in some of the recent screenshots that have come out. So, we'll find out. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping and and I I think that what Countdown into Darkness is going to be um is kind of a leading up to what Pike has to sit down and tell Kirk. Because we now know from the newest synopsis that Kirk is going to get his command taken away from him uh, in some way. Uh, He's going to go on a mission. It's going to go badly. And uh, Kirk and Spock and Uhura then go off to fix the issue that he's created. And so I'm wondering if this comic is really going to help us count down seeing that Kirk is a great leader he just doesn't seem to have the ability yet to learn that kind of humility that we came to see from, um, you know, Admiral Kirk and and, and uh, Star Trek Two, where you know obviously he says, you know, I just got caught with my pants down, so uh, this can happen to anyone, and that that kind of humility, which hadn't been seen in Kirk when the original Space Seed had come out. Right, um, And yeah. so I think that might be one of the things they might try to do. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's a good tie-in then to Uhura being on the second cover, Spock being on the third cover, build up to that whole story. And the fourth one will introduce the actual emergence of John Harrison. We'll find out what his anger is about or what his, maybe I shouldn't say anger. I think maybe I'm viewing it as two-dimensional there because we have been told that He's a much more complex villain. You know, he believes that what he's doing is right. I don't think it's necessarily this person who's angry at Kirk, who has just come back to kill everyone to get back at Kirk. It's it seems more complex than that. But we in the fourth issue, 
I think we will find out the background behind the situation, the background behind the issues that Harrison has with Starfleet and what he's hoping to change through the actions that we've seen in the trailer. Which will be very interesting because how you kind of, as a, as a character, rationalize that kind of destruction that we've seen, you know, honestly on the poster and what we've heard will happen to London and then San Francisco. Um, I'm not sure, um, you know, I, I guess maybe that maybe is the villain's always weakness is that they're willing to destroy so much for the greater good, they always say, but you know, they'll have to sacrifice some along the way. So that, I think that's going to be interesting, you know, to have a kind of more complex villain than somebody who's just out for complete anger's sake, the way Nero was. Right. And I think that's what we'll see. So we'll find out, of course, when these come out, if our speculation is correct. And if this is the storyline that the countdown to darkness comics follow, but it gives us something to look forward to. And the first one is due very shortly now, right? Um, Next week, I believe. Yes, actually will be next week. In fact, it should uh, come out on, on Wednesday next week. So hopefully. So until then, we have other things to talk about in comics. And we're going to conclude our discussion, which we had a couple of weeks ago, about ongoing number 15 and 16, the Mirror Universe issues of the Abramsverse in Star Trek Ongoing. Now, Matthew, we've both had a chance to read ongoing number 16 now. So what are your thoughts on that? And I guess we should say spoiler alert for anyone listening. We are going to talk about what is in issue number 16. So you might want to skip this little segment here if you haven't read it yet or pause, read it really quickly and then come back. One of the things that I saw in this just two part duology of the the mere universe was the fact that they really weren't afraid to shake up this mirror universe in the same way that Deep Space Nine would indiscriminately kill somebody in the mirror universe without blinking an eye. Uh, this comic is is taking that same vein. We'll kill whoever we need to kill um, as long as it makes for a fun story in the mirror universe. And so um, definitely spoiler alert, but you know having them kill Kirk in the mirror universe I think is huge. So I was really shocked to see that. Um, but it definitely makes it a mirror, mirror, mirror universe. Yeah. Since this is like a mirror of a mirror. So apparently we're just in a house of mirrors. And <laughs> yeah, you can't tell which one is which. <laughs> well, to be honest with you, apparently we are only in Scotty's imagination. Because the thing about this was... So you read 15 when it came out originally, which has been a month or so. And then, because I get a little confused because IDW had the delays kind of in the middle of there. But so you read that. And and of course, Scotty is telling Bones a story as they're sitting there at the table. And then they jump into the mirror universe. And then you forget all of that. And you get into this mirror universe story. And it's going on and it's going on. And then, like you said, they kill Kirk. And Kirk is lying there, and you th- and and I'm thinking, okay, so in the Abrams verse, mirror universe, Kirk is now dead, and the Federation now has the Narada, or the, I shouldn't say the Federation, the Terran Empire now has the Narada, and then I turn the page, 
And then I remember, oh, wait, no, this is actually not happening. This is just Scotty speculating on what one universe might possibly be like as he tells this story to Bones. So for me, it kind of negated everything that I had just read. The, the story was fun. The story was fun. And all the details were coincidentally those of the mirror universe that we know from TOS and DS9 and, and Enterprise. But yet, the message I got at the end of the comic was that none of this actually happened. This is just, it's like when T'Pol sits down in Carbon Creek with Archer and Trip. And she tells them this entire story about Vulcan First Contact in Pennsylvania. And they don't believe her. And she says, you told me to tell you a story. That's kind of how I felt at the end of this. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, in this one, um, you're left even more thinking that it's just a story or just a speculation. Because in that story that T'Pol tells, she then goes back to her quarters and has the very same. And she has the bag, uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you know that some form of that story is true. Uh, it's obviously probably been embellished or just she's added to or. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I didn't necessarily have a problem with that. It's the mirror universe. And, and the only thing that in this one that I really was kind of thrown for a loop for is when Prime Spock shows up. And I was like, ha this, I'm not yeah. even sure time travel universe hopping parallel universe hopping this is even possible um you know but i'll just go with it because it, it <laughs> makes for a fun story yeah. yeah it is a fun story i i found myself getting into the story despite the fact that i felt like okay oh now it's gonna be the jellyfish ship's gonna come through oh now prime spock is here Prime Spock from the Prime Universe is now in the Abramsverse Mirror Universe. <laughs> but if he's here, it means he never went there. So does that mean that right. Vulcan still exists and all the things that happened in the 2009 movie didn't happen? Because you can keep the Prime Abramsverse Universe. Boy, this terminology gets confusing. And the Abramsverse Mirror Universe, you can keep those separated until... Spock and his jellyfish ship, which initiated the events of the 2009 movie, come through to the Abrams exactly. versus Mirror Universe. And like, how can you be in both? And because it wasn't like a mirror jellyfish ship. It gets really confusing. As a song from my childhood used to say, you got to keep them separated. Uh, <laughs> and right. they definitely did not keep anything separated here. I mean, they threw everything no. in in the kitchen sink. Um, I think one of my favorite things is seeing the uh, TOS movie era uniforms show up on Pike uh, oh, yes. as an admiral. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I loved that, you know. Um, and what I what I thought was interesting about this is that honestly, this was a fun way for Scotty to talk about how the Abrams verse exists in the first place. Right. Yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that we have these kind of parallel universes and um this is really just i think almost their way of helping us understand how exactly the the jj verse sits alongside the prime universe and yeah that's a good um, point and so and then by getting a chance to kind of see this mirror mirror then 
it's a it's more of an opportunity just to give us something fun to read and yeah it not take necessarily too seriously in the same way that some of the later deep space nine mirror universe episodes just were telling a really fun story with our characters getting to play different characters and just have a good time and so um well i think that at the end like you said it's scotty explaining how the abrams verse came into existence and it's also why, ultimately, as confusing as the whole Spock jellyfish ship thing is, it was Scotty using their own experiences to explain this to Bones. And so I think that's why you see Prime Spock and the jellyfish ship coming in, because he's simply saying, look, this is what happened to us. These are the events that led to us sitting at this table right now in our own real lives. So just imagine like the same thing happens, but the events in that other universe are a little bit different. So in the end, despite the fact that I just talk about how confusing it is, in the end, I'm still fine with it because it was speculation based on real life experiences for Scotty uh, explaining to Bones what was going on. And I think the confusion that we had had the first time when this came out uh, about the TOS movie Enterprise being there is Mm -hmm. another way of them telling us these are how these universes kind of sit side by side um, because, you know, we see that the prime Spock comes from the prime universe. And so this is a representation of the prime Enterprise at this time right next to the JJ verse universe. And so you know these these all these universes are happening side by side in the way that Scotty's explaining to yeah. Bones. And yes, if it if it feels like your brain is about to explode right now, <laughs> don't feel bad because as the more I thought about this, the more I was wiping my brain off the wall. Right. Um but this was really fun. I I think of some of the ongoing comics, this was just a great romp of a story. And I really enjoyed it. I think the artwork in it is fantastic. Um, so I was really uh, enjoying this comic because of that as well. Uh, and so I'm kind of hoping that uh, they'll maybe continue to mix up the artwork and the ongoing comic a little bit like this and allow some artists to just have a good time. Yeah, I, I, I did like the art of Uhura in 15 better than 16 though i didn't feel like we got good views of her in 16 so well and um yeah i agree with you that the the outfit that they have her in here is a little bland in fact all of them kind of go into this gray jumpsuit kind of thing yeah and it's not as visually enjoyable not just Um, the outfit but the hair and everything was was really striking in 15 and i felt very ordinary in 16 yes yeah, I think you're right. They they did seem to, in some ways, soften her up yeah. character-wise, uh, which kind of give you a clue as to what was going to happen in the story as well, um, in the same way that on a yeah. TV show, as a character grows, a lot of times they soften the character's features that they've had. Yeah. So, uh, But yeah, overall, I think this was something that was really enjoyable. Um, and uh, sometimes it's nice to be able to read a comic and just not have to worry about any kind of continuity. You're just, you're there to have a good time. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry about continuity in this one or your head will explode. 
Tonight we're very excited to have uh, David Mack with us, author of the Cold Equations series that has just finished up with The Body Electric. Hi David, how are you doing? I'm doing great, good to be here. Excellent, David. Well, um, one of the things I always like to do is just get a just a quick uh, introduction and um, wanted to know uh, from you just uh, kind of what your introduction to Star Trek was and, and getting into the universe. And, and then uh, if you had one, what is your favorite series? Well, let's see. That's a multi-part question. Uh, I got into Star Trek, uh, like many people of my generation did, watching the syndicated reruns on television when I was a kid. I was born just too late to see it in first run, so I uh, grew up watching the syndicated reruns of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy on the original Enterprise. And uh, then I saw the movie in 79 and continued to uh, have my love affair with all things Star Trek. Uh, even after I got entranced by Star Wars, Star Trek remained my first <laughs> love. As far as a favorite series... Um, I'm biased, but it's Deep Space Nine for me. And not just because I co-wrote some episodes of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but I just enjoyed the serialized approach it took to storytelling, which was new to Star Trek at that time. And I really appreciated the darker sensibility, the grittier aspect, the willingness by the producers to show us characters who were more flawed than what we had seen in Next Gen, and who dealt with politically more complex and ambiguous situations and adversaries than we had seen in either the original series, which tended to be very black and white Cold War allegory, or Next Gen, which tended to be very utopic in its depiction of future society. And even when the Next Generation uh, writers chose to portray an alien society, that was, let's say, antagonistic or meant to be held up for criticism, they tended to do so through a very forgiving lens, whereas I found Deep Space Nine was more willing to be uh, unflinching in its view toward the characters and situations and societies and ideologies that it depicted. And I just somehow never got into Voyager, and uh, I also never really got into Enterprise, so for me, DS9 was uh, the top of the heap for me. You're in good company here with us in terms of Deep Space Nine because, um, yeah, we have the same view. Definitely in good company, David. Um, Chris and I actually just started our brand new uh, Deep Space Nine podcast uh, this week. And so um, very glad to, to hear that uh, you're among those of us who are Niners. And so... One of the things I really enjoy getting a chance to do is is uh, just hearing about writers and um, how did do you get into writing? Is that something that you had wanted to do um, all your life, or did you just kind of fall into it? And then how did you get into writing for Trek books? Well, okay, there's a long story. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, from when I was a little kid, my parents said that I used to have a strange knack for. Watching a movie on the little black and white TV they let me keep in my bedroom, I would watch a, a movie, say at night, and then go to bed. And the next morning at breakfast, I could recount the entire plot of the movie over pancakes. Oh, wow. Mm. And uh, so apparently I just had a knack for holding story in my head, even as a kid. And as I got older, when I was maybe about maybe 9 or 10, maybe 11, 
I started daydreaming about having my name on the cover of a book and writing a book, and I just thought that would be the coolest thing in the world. And I harbored that fantasy for a couple of years. Then in my teenage years, I took a shift towards screenwriting. I got interested in writing for television and movies. There was a TV show I was watching at the time, and it was a kid's show, I guess, out of Canada called You Can't Do That on Television. The one where they dump yeah, they dump green slime on people's heads when they say the words I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I got it into my head that I could write a script of this show if I was given half a chance. So I watched the end credits of the show, and I got the name of the producer, a guy named Roger Price. And I called information, and I got the phone number for the production company in Toronto. And I called up, and I asked for him by name, and somebody put me through to Roger Price. And I introduced myself. I said, hi, you know, this is my name is, and I'm 14 years old, and I'd like to try to write for your show. Most guys, oh, wow. most guys would have hung up the phone right there, but Roger Price, nicest guy I've ever talked to in my life, apparently, took pity on the 14-year-old kid who had the chutzpah to call his office uh, and ask to write for a show. <laughs> over, the, <laughs> over the phone, he walked me through the specifics of television script format, told me what the margins were, what should be in all caps, what should be in mixed case, told me what to capitalize, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera and told me, you know, this is about how long the skit should be, and this is the terminology we use for this and that and the other thing. So he walked me through the fundamentals. I wrote up a bunch of scripts. I FedExed him off to his office, collected some rejection letters, and all of this was done at the urging of my high school freshman year English teacher, who I had told about this inkling of mine, and he said, well, why not try it? What's the worst that could happen? And, oh, wow. and, yeah. and although I didn't, you know, break through, I mean, obviously the stuff I was writing was juvenile and stupid and not up to professional TV standards. The fact that even after I got a rejection letter, I tried again and then tried again, convinced my mom that I was serious enough about it that because she was taking night school classes at a business school at a community college near us, she noticed that there was an introduction to screenwriting class on the same nights and times as her business class. So she said, mm -hmm. if I could get permission from my principal and my English department at the high school to take college-level English at night, she would pay for the class, and I would ride in and back with her two nights a week, and I would take the screenwriting class. So I got permission from my school, my English department, etc., even though I was only a sophomore in high school, to go to community college and take the screenwriting classes at night. Wow, that's great. And I aced that class, and I fell in love with screenwriting, and that was what led me to film school, which is what I did. I went to NYU Film School when I was 18. So I was very focused on film and television for many, many years, and it was when I started uh, college was the same year that Star Trek The Next Generation premiered. It was in their second season that they began what they called their open-door policy, where they would let anybody who wanted to write a complete script, 55, 57 pages, whatever, of a, in proper teleplay format, and you could send in your teleplay on spec, and they would put it in the slush pile, and somebody on staff would read it. And I did the moment they did that, I was like, okay, I'm going to break through. Somehow I'm going to get out of the slush pile, even though it was like a 1 in 10,000 or a 1 in 15,000 chance. I mean, they, they used to get about 5,000 submissions a year, and I think they only ever bought like two or three things wow. out of the slush pile. Wow. So I started submitting scripts and collecting rejection letters, and 
I never broke through at NextGen. I just never quite got there. I graduated from film school, and I was about a year or two out of college. I was working, uh, you know, and in college, the only thing I learned beyond film production was I'd been the editor of the College Humor magazine. So I had learned something about magazine publishing, editing, writing, and layout. So I went into magazine editorial work when I got out of college. And I was working for newspapers as a crime beat reporter. I was a journalist. I was an, a freelance article writer. I was a researcher. I, I did pretty much whatever could be done within the field just to pay my bills. And I would do two, three different gigs at a time just to scrape together enough money to pay my rent in New York City and pay my student loans, which were outrageous. And I had exactly <laughs> I had debts you wouldn't believe. I came out of college, forty-three grand in the hole. So, oh, wow. so yeah, film school, that'll do it to you. Came out with no job skills either, apparently. But uh, <laughs> but I kept at this, and then a funny thing happened around 1993, 1994. Because I wasn't having much luck breaking through into writing for the Star Trek TV series, I got it in my head. I said, well, maybe it would be easier to break through into the Star Trek books, and maybe by doing so I could get somebody's attention. This is, of course, a ridiculous notion, but at the time, that's what I thought, because I didn't know anything about the industry or how it actually worked. But I had this notion, and I told my college buddy, Glenn, my best friend, in whose house I'm sitting right now, and he, at that time, had just met a guy named John, who, at that time, had just become the editor of the Star Trek novels, and he said, well, you know, oh, wow. but this guy, John, who I just met, acquires and edits the Star Trek novels. But he wants to have sideline income working for magazines, selling articles, and you've got connections in the magazine industry. You want to write Star Trek books, and he's the guy to talk to. Why don't I introduce you two guys? There's a lunch that happens every Wednesday, publishing professionals. Why don't you come to it, and I'll make the introduction. So I came to this lunch, and I was introduced to John. Glenn sort of explained the situation. And uh, I had been working frantically on my what I thought was my brilliant pitch for the novels. I wrote up my sample chapters and whatnot. And I meet John, and he gives me a copy of the writer's guidelines. The things that say, you know, well, we don't want any stories about this, and we don't want any stories about that, and you can't invent new, never-before-seen relatives for the main characters, and you can't kill them off, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. So I took the guidelines home, and I read them. And I went down the list one by one, and I realized that my proposal and my sample chapters that I was working on had violated every single one of them. <laughs> Everyone. I mean, not just one or two. I bungled the whole thing, and so I shredded the pages, and I burned them to make sure they would never be found and brought to light to be used as evidence against me. And I kept going to lunch and hanging out with the guy in a social setting, and I went back to working on Star Trek DS9 scripts one point, about a month or two later, he said, what happened to that book proposal you were going to give to me? And I said, it violated all your guidelines. I decided not to waste your time with it. He said, you know, there are professionals who aren't that considerate. And that was how he and I became <laughs> friends. And then as I was working on more and more spec scripts for Deep Space Nine, which had the same open door policy as Next Generation, I would tell John over lunch each week what I was working on, what my latest spec script was about, and he would say, oh, well, you probably don't want to do that because I get the scripts in advance from the Paramount office, and five weeks from now, there's going to be an episode called this, and they're doing that, and it's going to blow your spec script out of the water. I went, oh, well, thanks for the advice. And this would go on and on until finally, one week, he gave me so many notes and so many pieces of advice 
on a single script idea, I said, why don't we just write the script together? And his face brightened, and he looked across the table, and he said, why don't we? Because he had wanted to write for the show. He had the ability to get a pitch meeting with the producers at any time. What he didn't know anything about was screenwriting. He had no training, and he had no idea where to start. I, of course, had a degree in screenwriting, but no way to get to the producers. You put the two of us together, you got yourself a team. That's great. So that's what happened was John and I teamed up around 1993, 1994, and we began uh, working. We said, all right, well, here's what we know. You know, you pitch your basic idea verbally. If they like it, they want to see an outline almost immediately of about five to seven pages. And then if they buy that, the moment they buy that, you've got two weeks to turn in a first draft teleplay that adheres to the beat outline you developed from it. So we said, we've got to know before we sit down to a pitch meeting, that we're capable, you and me, of following through and doing the job. So we made ourselves sit down and we developed a story together that we both liked. We wrote an outline that we liked. We did a beat outline where you break it down act by act, scene by scene, to show the structure of the story. And then the moment we locked that down, we timed ourselves. We said, two weeks from tonight, we have to have a finished teleplay. And we did it. And then we did it two more times. We wrote a total of three spec scripts together just to prove to ourselves that we could do it consistently and do it well. Then we picked the best of those three spec scripts and we uh, set up our pitch meeting. Uh, we had pitch meetings with both Voyager and DS9 within a few days of each other. And within about a week, we made two sales off of our first two calls. Wow. And uh, Voyager actually bought from us first. And because our spec script was for Deep Space Nine, it was safe for it to be sent to Jerry Taylor because she worked on Voyager. If we had sold to the DS9 guys first, we couldn't have sent them our spec script. They couldn't have looked at it for legal reasons. But we sent Jerry Taylor our spec script, and she read it, and she loved it. And then she heard through the grapevine inside the Hart building where all the Star Trek TV production was run, she heard through the grapevine that we had also sold to Iris Stephen Bear downstairs at DS9. So she walked down to Iris' office. She said, I heard you bought a story from Mac and Nordover. He goes, yeah. She goes, well, here's the spec script they sent me for this, you know, after I bought a story from them last week. You should read this and consider giving them a script assignment. Ira read it. He agreed, and that was how we ended up getting script assignment on our first ever sale to DS9, which almost never happens. A lot of time you sell the story, somebody else in-house writes the script, and you never get anywhere near it. We got to, right. we got to write the teleplay on our first shot out of the gate because Jerry Taylor vouched for our spec script. Now, we thought after this, we thought we were going to make a whole bunch more sales and make a ton of money and get invited to go on staff. <laughs> I thought I was going to move to L.A. and get a tan and get thick. No, 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 no. And we never sold anything again. We, we made two sales that day, and one other thing we pitched that day was bought three years later after many, many development calls. But we, put, we must have pitched on about 150 to 200 other ideas in the years after that, and we never sold them again. Wow. So it was sort of frustrating and heartbreaking in that regard. Now, what happened was that while we were continuing this pitch process after our initial flush of success, I was doing a lot of, I guess you could call it scut work for John in the uh, Simon & Schuster office in the Star Trek Books Department. I was reading slush manuscripts submitted by other people and finding reasons to reject them and writing stock rejection letters. I was organizing shelves. I was writing reference materials for other writers like Peter David. 
Uh, and I'm going to take a quick aside here for anyone who's listening to this. Uh, those who don't know, Peter David recently suffered a stroke uh, on December 30, 2012, just while he was on vacation yes. with his family. Anybody listening to this, if it's you know 2013, whatever, uh, please go to crazy8press.com where a lot of Peter's works are available in immediate, like on-demand, print-on-demand, or ebook format. And, and please try buying some of Peter's stuff because every dollar you buy. Uh, for stuff, he gets a, a better percentage of profit off of stuff bought through the crazy8press.com, and that's crazy numeral eight press.com. Uh, so please buy some stuff there and help support Peter David. He doesn't want your charity; he just wants your business, and he just wants to get better. So, um, thank you so much, David. Yeah. So cycling back to my story, trying to try and get back into that now. I. Uh, was writing all these reference materials, and over the course of the years, the reference materials and stuff I was asked to write got longer and longer. And what ended up happening was by the time year 2000 rolled around, I was asked at one point, uh, John Ordover said, hey, John Bornholt came up a little short on book one of the Genesis Wave trilogy. We need 5,000 words in 72 hours in the form of a Starfleet internal report about the Genesis device. Can you do that? And not being a fool, I said the magic words. Yes, yes, I can. <laughs> and in 72 hours, I wrote a 5,000-word internal Starfleet report uh, spanning you know, three eras of Star Trek, all about the Genesis device, and it ended up becoming Chapter 14 of that guy's book. Based on that, another editor in the Star Trek department, a woman named Jessica McGivney, who had been working with Margaret Clark, contacted me and said, hey, you did such a great job with the technobabble on the uh, Starfleet report. We have a book that we've actually got greenlit, ready to go, called the Starfleet Survival Guide. We have the artist. The idea has been approved. We have a budget for it. The only thing we don't have is a writer. Do you want to write the book for us? And I'm thinking, hmm, let me see. I get to write a book with my name on the cover. I don't have to pitch it. I don't have to worry about approvals. It's already approved, and it has a budget. Yes, yes, I can do that. So I said, <laughs> I said, I said the magic words, and... So in 2000, within a span of a few months, I had signed my first book deal and gotten a job, a full-time job at the uh, Sci-Fi Channel as the editor of their website. And I've been working. Wow. And I, before that, I've been working as like a news editor and desktop, uh, you know, news desk editor and whatever. And so I moved over into entertainment and television and marketing at, at around the same time I moved into book writing. So Starfleet Survival Guide, I finished that. Proved I could finish a book, so John Wardover and Keith DeCandido, who at the time were editing and acquiring the Star Trek Starfleet Corps of Engineers books, said, well, you've proved you can finish a book. How would you like to pitch narrative fiction to the e-books for the SCE line? And I was like, that sounds great. But I wasn't too sure that I was ready to write narrative prose. I had never really done it before. I had done screenwriting, but I wasn't really trained for prose. I was trained for screenwriting and for journalism, and this was kind of a new animal. So my first approach at that, I co-wrote with Keith DeCandido on a Starfleet Corps of Engineers ebook called Invincible, which was a two-parter. And after that came out, we were going to co-write another one, which was going to be uh, Wildfire. And then 9-11 happened, and something, some switch flipped in my brain after 9-11. And I remember walking up to Keith at the uh, Science Fiction Writers of America annual cocktail reception about a month or two later, and I said to him, that story that I uh, pitched you, Wildfire? He goes, yeah. I said, uh, no offense, but 
if it's okay with you, I, I think I'd like to try to write it on my own. I, I think I have something that I need to say, and I think I'd like to take a stab at it. And he said, that sounds great. You should do that. And he gave me tons of advice and uh, was a, a great coach to me, and so was John. And They kind of worked me through it, and uh, it became my first novel. It's a short novel. You know, when you put it together, it's about 50,000 words. But it's still some of my favorite work, and it hit a bunch of ebook bestseller lists, and it got a lot of critical acclaim and a really strong fan response. And based off that, John offered me my first pair of uh, back-to-back novel contracts, uh, which turned into A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal. One of those hit the USA Today list in 2004. And here we are, you know, uh, about eight years, eight and a half years later, and now I'm a New York Times bestseller, and I've done about 20-some-odd books, and uh, that's how I got to where I am. Man, that's awesome. I I was wondering about that just because I, you know, I looked through, you know, your uh, memory beta page, and I was like, man, he has written so many books, and, and noticed that you've written so many Star Trek books and lots of different um, series, and um, I was wondering, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about Destiny, um, and just kind of how that came about, because in the time period, you know, the, the books had kind of been everywhere, and they really got very focused, especially with the Time 2 series. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just seemed to continue on from there. So how did y'all build into that Destiny series? Destiny came about through a number of factors. One was that the editors wanted a big, multi-book crossover event, something that would unite a lot of the different literary properties under one banner and hopefully unite those readerships and by exposing them to each of the other book series, maybe help draw somebody who, for instance, only had ever read the Titan books, maybe get them interested in the next-gen books or the DS9 books, and vice versa. The other concept behind it was just that they wanted some sort of a big publishing event because they're easier to market, they're easier to promote. Right. But they didn't really have any clue of what form this would take. And the only other thing they knew was that the new Star Trek movie was supposed to be coming... Around that time, it was originally scheduled, the first one, for release around Christmas 2008. We didn't know at the time that it was going to be postponed until May of 2009. So what they wanted was to avoid the 23rd century completely so that they would minimize the risk continuity-wise of stepping uh, on anything that the new movie might be doing. They said, I could use any of the 24th century stuff, or I could use, and I could use anything from the Enterprise era but they wanted me to specifically avoid anything from the 23rd century so that we you know, wouldn't offend J.J. and his crew. Right. What they did was I, I was called to a meeting with editor Marco Palmieri and editor Margaret Clark. They were both going to be working on the project because they were each editing different series that were tied into this, and because the events that were going to transpire would affect ongoing continuity in all of the existing series, they both had to be involved, which meant I had to please not just one editor, I had to please two. And as anybody who's <laughs> done this knows, it's hard enough making one editor happy at a time. When you've got to make two happy at a time and a licensor, you're in a special circle of hell. So <laughs> I get called to lunch, we go out, and they open up this coffee table book they had published. Uh, and it was basically just these sort of nice paintings. And it was uh, it was a full-page painting in this book of one of the 
ships from the Enterprise TV series. Uh, it was the NX, uh, Columbia NX-02. And, or it's NX-02 Columbia. I can never remember which order that goes in. Whatever it is, it's the Columbia. It's the second of those ships. Crashed in the desert. And it was inspired by a, a, a famous painting of uh, an aircraft crashed in the desert. Uh, but it was the Starship crashed in the desert, broken, half-buried, surrounded by 24th century Star Trek technicians. And somebody had written a caption for it, you know, saying that uh, crews from Defiant, Deep Space Nine, whatever, found the lost remains of the Columbia in the 24th century in the Gamma Quadrant. And it was just something that somebody had written randomly, I guess, because there were runabouts in the picture and they looked like DS9 uniforms. But this image, which somebody had captioned just on a lark, in a little flight of whimsy, had sparked a ton of fan inquiry by email to Simon and Chester saying, what story did this happen in? Where is this from? How did the uh, Columbia get to the Gamma Quadrant? Why was, who found it? When did they find it? Yada, 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 yada. And they said, clearly, there is some seed of a story waiting to happen here in this image that has struck a chord with the imagination of fandom. And the editors looked at me across the table and they said, can you, starting from this one image, build a multi-series crossover epic trilogy event? And I looked at them across the table and I thought for a moment and I said the magic words. Yes, yes I can. I had no idea how. I had no idea what I was getting into. <laughs> uh, but it it turned into a very long journey. There were many uh, aborted attempts. There were many storylines that I pitched that just never made the grade that got thrown out for this reason or that reason. I don't even remember most of them at this point. I think we threw out something like six or seven different possible ideas before I, I finally sat down and I looked at all the books that had been published in the post-Nemesis timeline up to that point and the ones that were planned for release uh, that we knew about at that time. And I looked at Margaret and I said, look, you've done a lot of books starting here and ending here where you're dealing with what looks like a renewed threat from the Borg. I said, you know, who otherwise had been silent for a long period of time before this in the fiction. I said, you've woken up the 800-pound gorilla. I said, if you want an epic miniseries event, I think this is the threat you need to deal with. I said, I think you need to take the Borg to the ultimate conclusion and, and really make them the existential galactic threat that they were you know, originally conceived of being, that's, I think, the epic storyline. And the editors were apprehensive. They said, well, what do you propose would be the satisfying ending for such a miniseries event? And I said, well, obviously, however it ends, the Borg need to be dealt with as a threat one way or another for good. This has to be the alpha and omega of the board, the beginning and the end. And they liked that pitch enough. They said, okay, but how do you tie that to the Columbia? And that was where I started thinking up convoluted time travel ideas, and then I started developing weirder and weirder theories to tie all these different series together and all these characters and far-flung locations. And then I grafted on this existential threat and I had to weave together all of the ongoing continuity from four or five different series of books. Uh, so I had massive flow charts and timelines and grids and spreadsheets. It was pretty ridiculous. 
but uh, that was the genesis of the of the Destiny trilogy. That was how it all started. Wow, that's and it's such a good trilogy. And uh, I was actually at a Barnes and Noble today, and you will be uh, glad to know that they are still using um, that series as, as something to promote. Um, there was a stand up for Star Trek books, and it was the picture from um, Mere Mortals um, on the top with yeah. you know Picard, and so I was like, man, this this is definitely something that has um, really stuck into the I think the minds of fans. Um, because of what you did with the Borg finally bringing them to an end. And I think, you know, I know for me, I was kind of ready for them to kind of come to an end. And I loved the way you ended that series. Um, I, I felt like, you know, like you said, giving us the end or the beginning and the end of the Borg in one book, you know, that was that was something that I think we'd all wanted for a very long time. Um, and I can't honestly imagine it done, done better. So, Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, well, one of the things that I was wondering now, just kind of moving on, wanted to get into cold equations was, um, you know, you have already created a, a very epic series with destiny. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it seems like, uh, too, by doing that, you had kind of, um, set on a new course too for Trek lit. You got the opportunity to almost reset the universe a little bit. And, uh, how did pocket come back to you and say, okay, we want another series. Um, you know, how did cold equations come together? Cold equations started, I guess about a year, year and a half ago. And it started in much the same way that destiny did, which was that the editors had been very pleased with the performance of destiny in terms of its sales pleased enough that they allowed me to put, or they decided to put together an omnibus edition, all three books in one large trade paperback format, and they allowed me to go in and re-edit and clean things up and uh, sort of polish it up a little bit, which I appreciated. And they said, we really loved the sort of scope of this event. Would you be willing to put together another trilogy? And I, of course I said yes, but I said, here's the catch. I said, I don't want to just try to repeat Destiny. I said, because I don't really think that I can top that in terms of the scale, the damage, just the sheer grandeur of it. And I said, also, one thing that I thought kind of uh, worked against Destiny a little bit was the fact that it was one big story split into three books with cliffhangers in the middle. I said, you know, for a reader who maybe casually picks up book two, they're thrown into the middle of something that they don't know what's going on. They don't know how they got here. And then it ends on a cliffhanger and they (laughs) don't know how it ends. I said, you know, it's a little frustrating. I said, if I'm going to do another trilogy, I said, I understand that, you know, it's next generation, 25th anniversary. We want something uh, like that. And it was my idea. I said, look, you know, look at the publication date. I said, this is going to be next generation, 25th anniversary. I said, we should do a next gen focused trilogy, strictly next gen, no crossover, no Titan, ODS nine, nothing, just TNG, and they were they were down with that. They uh, they said okay, and I said, but I don't want to do one big story split into three books. I said I want to do the classic trilogy structure, which is three stories, each of which is complete unto itself narratively, but all three of them are linked by thematic elements, a shared cast, and a shared setting. And the editors were a little bit hesitant, but they said, okay, what have you got? And as just as you know, will happen on a lot of projects, but especially on a big project like this, 
you can't just pitch one book at a time. The editors need to see the full trilogy pitch. They need to see the big picture as well as the book by book and the scene by scene. So yeah. we had a number of proposals that we went back and forth on. My first two or three uh, proposals, including some books that I, I thought were really good and had a lot of potential, they just didn't feel like they worked. There was also uh, a lot of sort of changing uh, situations in terms of what was going on behind the scenes, negotiations and contracts and changes in the editorial lineup due to you know the economic crisis and people getting laid off and um, there was you know a, a change set of parameters for what they wanted uh, versus you know what they wanted at the start was not what they wanted by the time I was actually turning in outlines and that caused us to have to do another go round. But finally, what I settled on, I said, well, if we're going to be dealing with something big, and I said, you want something that's big enough to merit a whole trilogy? I said, well, uh, I said, I really think that there's room to move with bringing back Data. I said, he's a fan favorite character. His absence has felt like a hole in the next-gen books. We've waited a good long time. I mean, it's been, you know, t uh, about 10 years now. When these books come out, it'll have been 10 years since Star Trek Nemesis was in theaters. We've left a good 10 years of mourning time. It's hardly a spoiler anymore that Data dies at the end of Nemesis. And the books, you know, maybe only about five years has gone by in the books. And I said, I think that there's an opportunity to bring him back. Now, what I didn't know, and a lot of fans have been commenting on the boards recently about how there seems to be suddenly this weird Jones at Simon & Schuster for bringing back characters from the dead with Janeway and Data. At the, time, right. at the time that I proposed this, I had no idea that the Janeway Resurrection uh, storyline was in development on the Voyager books. And nobody told me about that. So I had no idea that within a span of just a few months, the Eternal Tide was going to come out, and then like two months later, Persistence of Memory was going to come out. I had no idea that this was in the works. So... It wasn't as if you know a bunch of us got together and said, "Hey, let's just undo a bunch of character deaths." No, no, it wasn't like uh, <laughs> I think. But uh, and I just I just thought that there was a pretty good case to be made for how to bring back data. I know that it had previously been done in the Countdown comic books, but I was not particularly enthralled with their method or their reasoning. And uh, I wasn't either. So I thought to myself, there must be some better way. And what ended up happening was, on some of those failed versions of the trilogy proposal that I mentioned before, uh, they all started with the same idea of the first book being about the resurrection of Data. And the idea was that I was going to have books two and three. Originally, I was thinking books two and three would be focused on completely different characters, and that the unifying theme to the trilogy originally was going to be family, and that, uh, mm. you know, it was going to be all about fathers and sons. You know, my original idea was book one was going to be about Sung and Data. Book two was going to be about uh, Worf and uh, Alexander. And book three was going to be about Picard and uh, a grown-up, Renee. Wow. And uh, that was my theory, was it was all going to be about fathers and sons, and that ended up not happening. But as I went back and retooled, and one of the original criticisms I got from the editors after they read the first 
two or three versions of the trilogy pitch was, well, our big problem with book one is that it's a sequel to Jeff Lang's book, Immortal Coil, and by the time this comes out, Immortal Coil is going to be 10 years old, and we just don't think it works to have this book be a sequel to a book that came out 10 years earlier. And right. my kind of internal silent reaction to that was, well, then fuck you. I'm going to make the entire trilogy a sequel to Immortal Coil, and I'm going to make it work, <laughs> and you're going to eat your words. And I did, and it and that and it hits the times list. So I think they're really not in a position to argue with me right now. No, they're not, and it works perfectly. So I was pretty happy with it. So that was the genesis. Was simply, I mean, they they gave me a pretty blank check in terms of where to start. And once again, you know, we had some back and forth, and uh, it was even as they sort of made me go back to the drawing board a couple of times. That first story, which was about you know Sun sacrificing himself to resurrect his son, it resonated so strongly with me that mm. I realized, okay, if, I, if that's the only piece of this that I can keep, then that's the piece I'm going to keep, and I will build everything logically from here. And I started over again, I started asking myself more of these what-if questions. Well, if this technology exists and that technology exists, rationally, how would this get used? What storyline does that lead us to? What possibilities does that lead us to? Um, and then, of course, you know, after having books one and two of the trilogy be so focused on the current politics and political struggles and military struggles uh, that are going on in the current Treklet, the beauty of this structure where the three books are each independent narratively allowed me to say, and I'm going to throw a total curveball in book three, book three is not going to have anything to do with the politics, and we're going to go back to, you know, strange, larger-than-life, you know, alien menace, you know, a la the original series, a la the movies. You know, I wanted to go back to right. something a little more classic. And the fact that it, I managed to make it a tie-in to the first Star Trek movie, to Star Trek the motion picture, and managed to find a tie-in to V'ger, that just pleases my inner geek in ways you can't imagine. Definitely mine too. I mean, that's something that, um, you know, reading that third book, um, I was so happy to see, you know, because V'ger is such a strange anomaly in, in Star Trek. Um, and it's it's been used before with, with William Shatner and his books, but I really loved the way that you were able to tie this into um, the, you know, the, all of the AI and all of the universe just, um, and I, I saw a lot of... Um, uh, correlations between you know what you did for the organic universe in Destiny and their threat against the Borg being very much the same as AI's you know Destiny with the body electric um, you know having these kind of collective um, against the um, the you know the the personal and 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 the the individual. Um, and those seem to be something that kind of really go together very well. These two trilogies, you know, in the end, um, the the fight that AI has is for you know individuality and uh, existence in its very core. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just really like that. And and the other thing that I really noticed in this series uh, too is that you write this series and you're asking some of the biggest questions possible. 
um, you know, the meaning of life, uh, what is true life, you know, especially with to do with artificial intelligence, uh, what makes us human with, with, with Wesley and, and even data now and, um, looking at the relationships between, you know, the idea of a creator and a, and a creation, um, how do you kind of walk those lines of, you know, asking these questions, but then just kind of leaving the answers open for the reader to interpret? Well, sometimes there's really just no other choice. Part of what makes them the biggest questions there are is that there are no definitive, unequivocal answers. Sometimes all we can do is ask the question and allow ourselves to be awed by the majesty and the mystery that is the universe. The biggest question, of course, that runs through uh, both destiny and cold equation, of it, and it's one that I saw you had hit upon very astutely in your review for The Body Electric, is the Thank question you. of how can life have any meaning when we know that ultimately everything ends in death, even the universe, even time itself has to die. If we know that, then what meaning does anything have? And how do we... How, how can we impose meaning upon a finite universe that we know will eventually just take everything into, you know, zero-point energy transfer, entropic heat decay, and eventually just a, a state of, of death? And it really is the sort of thing where if you gravitate, if you focus on it for too long, maybe it can reduce you to a state of hopelessness. And maybe this is why so many people jump off bridges. I'm not really sure, but. I think it's the fact that you have to ask the question, and I think really it comes down to what makes us human or maybe what defines uh, life that's worth living is a life that's willing to rage against the dying of the light. And that's really mm. what it's all about is that if the moment we stop raging against the dying of the light, the moment we accept you know, futility, the moment we resign ourselves to it, then you're not really living anymore. You're just sort of standing around waiting for the end. It's better, right. I think, in the end, you know, as futile and hopeless as the situation may be, you know, be like Hudson and aliens. You know, whine and gripe if you have to, but go down fighting, and when you know the thing's got you, <laughs> go down with your gun blazing full auto and go, motherfucker. <laughs> exactly. That's awesome. Um, well, and I noticed, too, that, you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, this trilogy really does is that as, as large in scope as it is, it's very intimate in story for the characters. Uh, there's a lot of things that happen uh, with them, especially watching the shift that's happened in Picard um, family-wise and the struggles that now him and um, you know Crusher are having to face. She's watching this man that she's loved change completely. Um, and that was something that was really interesting. Just just talk to me, especially about Picard and Crusher and their relationship a little bit. Well, I mean, it's something that I've seen with my own eyes, you know, watching some of my friends who I've known when they were single, I've seen them when they were married, and single with them and married them is pretty much the same. And then I watch some of them make that transition into parenthood, and people just transform. Point of view changes, attitudes change, uh a sense of, you know, the future changes. I've watched them suddenly uh, just anything that they thought used to be important, I've seen them just throw throw aside in a heartbeat because they go, well, that's just not important anymore. And it was one of the things where, especially someone like Picard, who had spent much of his adult life saying, I don't 
really like children. I don't see the point of children. Uh, I'm not a family man. He had been against the idea of families, children, or even spouses in some cases being uh, posted aboard starships. Suddenly, he is in the position of being not only the captain, but also a husband, a father. He's got his family aboard the ship, and he's now finding himself you know, making some of the rationalizations that he used to chide other officers for when he was a younger man, a more callous man. And I think that that was also one of the uh, important points I wanted to show with regard to Picard is that he's able to grow as a person and as he gets older and his perspective changes and his life changes, maybe you develop a greater sense of empathy for the situations of others. You begin to see that mm. it's not just an easy calculation. Oh, well, there shouldn't be families aboard starships. But you can't say that when, you know, the option is you leave behind your family. When it's his family, well, suddenly it's a different equation. But is that really fair? And mm. then he has to start making calculations like, well, if I get killed on an away mission or Beverly gets killed on an away mission, you know, uh, our kid loses, you know, one of the two most important people in his life, whereas, you know, uh, you lose the president, well, hey, you know, constitutional crisis, but the Senate appoints, you know, the, the council appoints a president pro tem, there's an election in 60 days, and problem solved. The right. nation goes on. It, the institution is built for something like that. The institution won't be irrevocably damaged by the loss of a president. That boy will be damaged irrevocably by the yes. loss of a parent. So Picard has shifted from big picture thinking to realizing his primary responsibility is no longer, you know, captain of the Enterprise. Number one, he's realizing very slowly, but very surely, is number one priority in my life has to be I am the father of Rene Picard. And yeah. captain of the Enterprise can come second to that, but most likely it's going to be I am father of Rene Picard, I am husband to Beverly, and then I'm captain of the Enterprise, and then I'm an officer, and then I'm a citizen. Mm. And as these priorities begin to shift in his head, it's going to alter behavior. As priorities shift, behavior shifts. And it comes down, as you saw in Silent Weapons, of snap decision. Phasers are being drawn, shots are being fired, there's a moment of panic, and he has to choose. Go after, you know, try to tackle the president, go, try to go after the woman with the phaser, or try to get his wife out of line of fire, he gets his wife out of line of fire. And if somebody else mm. gets shot, well, that's their problem. And Beverly, this is not the guy she served with for, what, 15, 20 years at this point? She's watched him make selfless decisions over and over and over again. Now, not so much. Now, suddenly, he's putting family ahead of duty. And she's remembering that he used to give a hard time to her dead husband, Jack Crusher, for exactly yeah. that reason. And that's what's grating on Beverly. It's not necessarily... She's not angry at Picard because Picard loves her more than duty. She's angry because she sees in the seeds of hypocrisy, and that is what yeah. troubles her about her husband. She doesn't want to think of her husband as a hypocrite. And he even you know, calls her on that. He says, if you want to call me a hypocrite, so be it. But I prefer to think of it as I am learning and growing. Maybe I was wrong. Mm. And uh, so, so that's really the root of their conflict. A lot of people have misinterpreted that as she's upset because, you know, he chooses her. No, he, she's upset because 
he was willing to throw her husband's life away, but you know, now put in the same situation, he's willing to be selfish for himself. Mm. Well, and in some ways, Picard is becoming, I think, uh, more human. Uh, and I, that the, one of those questions of what makes us human in this, you know, this series, uh, Picard has become more human by having a family. And, uh, you know, for one, me personally, I, I enjoy that because for so long, Picard has kind of been inhuman in his feelings. And, yeah. and uh, you know, facing the Borg in first contact and then getting a chance to do it again in Destiny and having them finally defeated and and now having a family um, with Beverly has really made this man become new. And I, I think reading him as a character has been so much more interesting for me because of that. Yeah, what's been baffling to me is a lot of people who don't understand the metamorphosis that he was undergoing in Destiny. They don't understand, you know, why he suddenly seemed uh, unlike the, you know, active, you know, heroic Picard that they had all had in their imagination. I first of all thought, well, if you've watched the TV shows and the movies, you seem to be misremembering Picard in a lot of ways. But in another, if you really watch the progression of all of his encounters with the Borg over the many seasons of The Next Generation and then the movies, he had string of failure after string of failure after string of failure. He just repeatedly fails against the board. He he bungles against the board. He comes out by the skin of his teeth against the board. The board, even when he's bested them, as he did in first contact, the victory was pyrrhic at best. I mean, we're talking about a guy who, for for Picard, the Borg are the Achilles heel. They are the weak spot in his psychological and emotional armor. So... Mm. That what we were playing at, of course, in Destiny was that at exactly the moment where he has chosen to try and make one last stab at embracing hope in his life by creating a family, which really is, especially for a man of his advanced years and his experience, that's a gesture of hope. The moment he does, of course, it looks like the universe punishes him right. you know, by proxy <laughs> by suddenly having the great Borg invasion uh, begin. And he really feels like, you know, and this is what comes out in the third book in Lost Souls, he feels like the ancient mariner. He's the one who shot the albatross in a single moment of selfishness and as a result has doomed everybody around him because of his hubris. And what uh, Destiny is all about for Picard as a character is essentially it's about being in that place of hopelessness and then being delivered from hopelessness it's why his final lines in the book are, you know, what, you know, when Beverly says, what will you do in a universe without the Borg? You know, and he, he thinks mm -hmm. to himself, you know, it was not, uh, it, was, it was not a trite question. Uh, you know, he says, I will hope that uh, our son is born healthy. I'll hope he can grow up in a galaxy of peace. And then he looks out at the stars and he simply says, I'll hope. That's what Destiny mm. is all about for Picard. It's a man who has no hope at the beginning, a man who has lost hope, a man who has come to curse himself for daring to hope, and at the end, hope is given back to him. That is what yeah. Destiny is all about. This is a man who has had his faith rewarded. And, it, it, of course, Destiny is also all about the fact that what saves the day is not weapons and not tactics, but rather hope and love and salvation and deliverance. I mean, it really comes mm. down to Federation ideals, convincing the Kaliar to embrace Federation ideals of multiculturalism, a polyglot society, 
forgiveness, to get them to admit their own mistakes and right their own wrongs, uh, and open themselves up and stop being, you know, uh, xenophobes. It's right. It, basically, the whole idea is that the future is saved not through force of arms, but through force of ideas. And that mm. is, and that is at the core of Star Trek. And to me, that's yeah. one of my favorite aspects of Destiny: is that we didn't kill the Borg, we saved the Borg. Yeah, definitely. And I, for me personally, that was, I, I think, you know, instead of us having a huge blown out battle where you know the Borg just get destroyed because we have bigger might, um, it was the winning over of, like you said, Federation ideals. Um, and, and that's much more powerful to me than just some, you know, huge epic battle. Um, and, and I, I noticed that too, because that's kind of in some ways the same way the body electric gets dealt with as well. Um, yes. this, with this winning over of ideas. Um, and I, you know, I didn't think that <laughs> the death toll could get any worse than destiny. Um, <laughs> but right. you, you, you know, you, you are literally killing whole star systems and, and, you know, galaxies with, uh, this one. So uh, the death toll became, you know, I'm, unfathomable. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still way behind Keith DeCandido. He wiped out multiple universes in, uh, his that's book, true. in his book Q and A. So he just had to outdo me. That, that is true. That's what Keith and I do. Um, but I, I, you know, that's what made this so powerful, uh, for me as a series is again, you were hitting on all of these ideas over and over again, and the characters don't always have great answers, but I loved what you talked about with destiny about, you know, Picard kind of being hopeless. And in this series, Picard is a man who's full of hope. Uh, he reminds me just a little bit of Kirk. He is going to do everything to find a way because he doesn't believe, in death right now because he's got too much to live for. Exactly. Um, and I love that about him. Um, even just uh, the line where he's, you know, uh, they're, they're trying to, to go in and save the guys. And he's like, they're like, no, we can't go. We can't bring in the enterprise. The, the, the gravitational shear is too much. And he's like, you know, damn that go now. Damn the singularity full speed ahead. Yes, sir. And, and that I think just summed up, who Picard is right now. Um, and I think it's just making him a better captain. Um, but unfortunately on the other side, you have Worf, um, <laughs> who that guy cannot catch a break. Um, I don't know how many of his mates are going to die, but apparently it is just bad karma to sleep with Worf. I really end up dead. I really owe him a, a, an apology letter. I really should write him one just as author to character, <laughs> even if nobody ever sees it. The thing is, it wasn't, you know, one of those things where I thought, Oh, I should, wipe her out that'll be funny it was one of those things where as i was developing the story and i got to that scene when i was writing the outline and i thought to myself i always hate when a lot of idle threats are made and there's really no reason to take these guys seriously and then you know mm -hmm. we end up you know getting the drop on them and they just end up looking like a bunch of incompetent pussies i hate that and then i thought wouldn't it be great if just one of those times you know somebody decides to posture and sort of you know try to call their bluff and he winds up phasering one of your people right in front of you. And the real fun mm -hmm. I had was that the way the scene is written, you think if he's going to phaser anybody at that moment, you think he's going to phaser Worf. Right. And then instead he just, boom, you turn the page, and in one sentence he just phasers Chowdhury and vaporizes her. And then the other thing I, I really sort of, once I had that insight, I'm like, 
I'm, I said to myself, that is the cruelest, most vicious thing I could possibly do to this poor guy. And I thought, well, why, I'm not going to delay his revenge. So I made sure that, you know, within like, you know, one or two scenes, he broke that guy like a twig. Yeah. The thing is, unlike when he took out Duras after, you know, the murder of Kalar, and he finds no satisfaction. There's no release. Yeah. He's gotten too old, too experienced. Yeah. He has too much wisdom to realize, to, 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 to find catharsis in vengeance. He's beginning to realize that it's an empty experience. And that's mm. partly, it's the wisdom, but with wisdom in Worf's case comes great cynicism. And even he starts to think in terms of, yeah. maybe I should start thinking about celibacy. He actually has that thought, I think, in the second book. I should start thinking about celibacy. And right. you know, so it's not as if he's unaware of the stupidity and the irony and the cruelty of his circumstances. And the other thing, of course, that's really bothering him, of course, is that in the second book, he gets offered, you know, the possibility of having his name added to the next round of military promotions. And he suddenly feels like he, you know, without uh, wittingly having done so, he feels as if he is unwittingly given up. The, this woman who he had deep feelings for as a blood sacrifice and that, you know, mm. this is the atonement. Like, you know, in, in the past he chose Jadzia. He chose her life over duty and as a result was punished. And now the right. one time that, you know, he tries to stick to duty and this woman who is his mate is killed and now suddenly somebody wants to throw an extra pip on his collar and he he feels guilt. He's feeling survivor guilt. He's feeling as if you know, he's sacrificed love in the name of country, and he feels ashamed. So, yeah, he's in a pretty bad place, and it was a remarkably cruel thing to do to him, and yes, I should send him, you know, a a, a, a bouquet or something. I think he'll appreciate that. Um, he'll probably just throw it against the wall, but, uh, you know. Yes, but he'll feel better. Um, exactly. Well, one of the things, too, is that, you know, seeing Worf um, on this side, you know, you've got Geordi on the other side, whose love life is is going pretty well for the first time, you know, ever, uh, which I'm really thankful for. I'm sure he is as well. Um, but, you know, then he has to deal with this whole question of, you know, is this really my best friend or is it just a copy of my best friend? And, you know, he gets thrown into that that quandary of I, I don't know what to do with this. Plus, there's the uh, fact that, you know, he's been mourning his friend, you know, for close to five years, and suddenly the guy's back, and it almost feels like you've spent all that time mourning has been a waste. There's one right. passage, I believe, in the second book where he realizes he has, in effect, been mourning his grief. You know, right. he, so it's uh, he, he's got a rather complex emotional hole to dig himself out of as well. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to touch on real quick um, is, you know, the idea, you know, you said it, you felt like, that you wanted to bring data back and find a way to do that and to do it well. And, and obviously, we both agree. I, I didn't really enjoy Countdown uh, the way that they had data back. Um, so, you know, bringing him back, that's a big deal uh, because you're gonna, we're going to expect him to be involved somehow. Um, do you have any idea? Are you going to get a chance to, to kind of further that with him um, in, in, in the fall at all and kind of, guide data back into this universe? Well, I don't really have any uh, plans for it, to be honest. Uh, my book in the fall isn't really going to involve any of the next-gen characters in any significant way. Okay. I'm focusing more on Bashir and Ezri and 
some of the characters on the new DS9 and some other characters on various far-flung planets. Um, I made a point of not returning data to the Enterprise right away at the end of Cold Equations. I wanted to, I wanted to leave some leeway for whoever would come after me uh, in the, you know, in, in the books to either maybe write the return of data to Starfleet. I wanted to let somebody else have that story because I thought it was too big. That's too big a moment to just pass off with a sentence or even a chapter. That's really right. something that if it's going to happen, it's got to be done well, and it needs to be really done with style. And uh, so I, I specifically avoided doing that because I wanted to let somebody else have that moment. I don't know... If any, uh, I don't know what the editors have planned for him. I don't know what the okay. other writers have planned. Um, I don't know if he's going to appear in any of the upcoming TNG-related uh, books. But um, the fact that he's back and Law's back and they're better than ever, I'm, uh, I am hopeful that we will see them again. Um, I mean, of course, for me, the real thrill of book three was, you know, the resurrection of Law. I mean, that was just one of those right. things, you know. Uh so, yeah, who knows? Well, and I loved, I mean, I did, I really liked the epilogue because it leaves you with this idea of, you know, been asking all these big questions and seeing that one of the answers for a lot of these characters is 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 close, intimate relationships with family. Um, and, and really that in some ways um, family does make this... Um, you know, it just makes it seem worth living um, mm-hmm. when you have somebody to share it with. And, and I like that. And, and, you know, Data is somebody who uh, has never really been able to have anybody, but now being who he is is a combination of him and his father and um, the, the type of android that he is. He has a whole new life ahead of him. And I'm, I'm excited. I think um, that's going to be a very interesting story. Uh, to watch play out, and so yeah, I mean, it, it could go in any number of directions. And I, some fans actually raised a couple of you know interesting questions about now that he has these added capabilities and the added knowledge of his father to draw upon. You know, there is really no limit to what Data could do at this point. He could decide to rather than go back to Starfleet, he could just start making other Soong androids. He has the secret now. He knows how to do it. He's even got the secret of AI resurrection to a degree. I mean, maybe he, then again, maybe he doesn't. I mean, as Flint said, it was something he could do, not something he could explain. So it might be that he observed it. Maybe he doesn't know how to do it himself. Maybe the credit for that still goes to Flint. But at the very least, it's plausible that Data could now create functional, stable uh Sung type androids like himself and Lol, he could start building a new family. He could start building a new society. Right. Data data could radically alter the shape of the future. All bets are off. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if anybody's doing anything with this. <laughs> um, if nobody else does anything with it, who knows? Maybe I'll you know put together a proposal and call the editors next week. Man, that would be great. Um, well, uh, just one of the things that I'd had on the boards, I'd asked uh, just if anybody had questions. And one of the things that people had wanted to know if you were going to get a chance to uh, continue uh, at all or, or write any more Mirror Universe stories or if you all have had any ideas um, about doing another series, kind of like the Vanguard series. Um, I don't currently have any plans to write any more Mirror Universe books. I feel like with Rise Like Lions... 
I accomplished what I wanted to accomplish in the Mirror Universe. I feel like the saga that I set in motion with the Sorrows of Empire uh, reached an organic conclusion. While it's certainly not impossible to imagine that the story could go forward from there, I don't really feel like there's anything that I feel... There's nothing that I feel a burning need to do in the Mirror Universe beyond Rise Like Lions. I, I told the story that I set out to tell. As far as another series like Vanguard, who knows? I mean, the problem with trying to do, quote-unquote, another series like Vanguard is that Vanguard was really lightning in a bottle. It was one of those things where even when we were starting out, when it was just me and Marco uh, working on the series Bible and putting together the first book, we had no idea what it was going to turn into or how it was going to develop. He thought it was going to be a situation where I would write the series Bible and the first, maybe the first book or maybe the first two, but he had originally envisioned it as a multi-author series where he would have a whole bunch of different authors with different styles come in and approach the books in different ways. But it was only after the third or fourth book where uh, you know he had had, mm -hmm. I did the first and then Dayton and Kevin did book two and then I came back for book three. And, and the way that worked out is just that I decided I wanted to do a DS9 book uh, which turned out to be Warpath uh, rather than the right. second Vanguard book. So I handed off the second Vanguard book, and I'd set up the story outline and the series Bible in such a way that Dayton and Kevin were the natural choice to go to for book two. And then I voiced a desire after seeing how cool the stuff was that they had done in book two. I said, oh, I want to come back and play some more. So Marco let me come back and do <laughs> book three. And then I ended book three in such a way that... Uh, you know, it, it teased the imaginations of Dayton and Kevin, and that was when Marco got the idea of, hey, you know, a, a book series where it alternates back and forth between, you know, author on this side and duo of authors on the other, and they go back and forth and try to one-up each other. That's got a, an interesting dynamic that we haven't seen before. Let's try that and see how Definitely. it goes. And the four of us, you know, as a creative core unit, just gelled in a particular way, and it was just a, mm. a strange. You know, and part of this is echoed in the uh, one of the lines in the final book in the series, in Storming Heaven. There's an alchemy to things like this, uh, a strange fusion of, of people and places and uh, and times. And even if you try to replicate that formula, it just may not be possible. Um, so while it might be, you know, I'm not saying it's impossible that there could be another, uh, you know, project similar to this. Um, I'm not sure. It, it would be hard to imagine us, you know, replicating that same type of energy, finding that same type of vibe. I mean, that said, you know, Dayton and Kevin and I remain good friends, and uh, we would love to work together again. And we've talked on a number of occasions about finding the right project where the three of us could work together again as a creative team. Um, but so far, uh, nothing that can. Th th we we don't really have anything that we can talk about at this time. Well, I'm glad that you and uh, Dayton at least will be getting a chance to work on the fall series, um, because I think that that's going to be something that's uh, really epic this this coming fall. Um, anything at all that you can tell us uh, that you haven't on your website, or is it all pretty mum at the moment? Um, I can't really talk much about the story or the content because that's all pretty tightly under wraps. I mean, I'm not even really supposed to talk about the uh, the content of my own book beyond what I've already spilled on the site. The okay. one thing, the one thing that I will tell you, I noticed that one of the things that causes the biggest speculation is that when people hear the name of the miniseries, they're all saying, 
what's the fall? What does that refer to? You know, who falls? <laughs> what falls? You know, it's causing all this energy. Uh, I'll let you all in on a little secret. Uh, the way the name originally came about was when the project was uh, first proposed and the editors contacted a bunch of us to see who was available and get writers on board, the project had been given a working title of Star Trek call, uh, colon The Fall because it was a project scheduled for The Fall. So the miniseries <laughs> was named The Fall Miniseries because it was scheduled for the season of fall. And it was only as we began batting around ideas that someone said, you know, this is all turning pretty grim. Maybe we should just call it The Fall. That's kind of ominous. We all thought it was a good <laughs> laugh and a good joke. And then the editor said, uh, actually, that's not bad. We'll go with that. And we're like, oh, what have we done? <laughs> <laughs> I that's love great. it. There you go. Now you have an exclusive. I love it. That's great. Well, um, I do want to to get you out of here. Thank you so much for your time. But uh, one of the things I wanted to do is is I always like to know, you know, as an author, what are the things that you enjoy reading? Uh, you know, when you go into a Barnes and Noble or any other bookstore there in New York, the Strand or whatnot, what is it that kind of catches your fancy? Well, I mean, it shifts obviously from time to time. And sometimes I'm in a different mood, and I'll pick up things to suit that mood. But I'll tell you, the uh, books that have really been just knocking my socks off uh, the last couple months are the Sandman Slim books by author Richard Cadry. God damn, these books are just so much fun. He is such a fantastic writer. Uh, I, I read his books, and they're so good that they make me angry because I didn't write them. That's how good they are. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so these days I, I've, I've got, uh, I think, two or three more books by Richard Cadry uh, for Christmas because I asked for them, and I'm really looking forward to digging into those when I got a little bit of spare time. Um, so yeah, yeah, for me right now, my uh, my go-to favorite author right now is uh, Richard Cadry. That's great. Um, well, the last thing I'd like to do is just uh, let you tell the listeners where they can follow you, uh, anything coming up for you that you'd like to mention, um, to have them look at, um, and where are those places, uh, and then what, what would you like to plug? This is your place. Well, let's see. If you're going to follow me, a good place to start is to visit my website, davidmack.pro. That's davidmack, M-A-C-K, dot P-R-O, pro. And my blog is davidmack.pro slash blog. I know, it's impossibly clever. You can also <laughs> follow me on Facebook. I have an author page that anybody can like and follow. That's facebook.com slash thedavidmack, T-H-E, David Mack. Uh, I am also on Facebook with like a regular profile page. And feel free to friend me there. Uh, I'm not really precious about it. Uh, it's a promotional tool, and I'm happy to welcome people aboard. I am on Twitter at David Allen Mac, and Allen is spelled A L A N. So it's David Allen, A L A N, Mac, M A C K. David Allen Mac at Twitter. And uh, let's see, what to plug? What to plug? Well, the next work I have scheduled isn't going to be out until the end of 2013, and that's my contribution to the Star Trek miniseries, The Fall. My book is titled A Ceremony of Losses and that'll go on sale in November. What I have out right now, which I'm going to plug, is the Star Trek Next Generation Cold Equations Trilogy, 
All three books are now currently out. They're available in paperback and various ebook formats from a number of different retailers. Book one is The Persistence of Memory. Book two is Silent Weapons. Book three is The Body Electric. Books one and three are also New York Times bestsellers, so if you want to see what all the hype is about, please feel free to jump on the bandwagon and add a few more sales <laughs> to the mix. Your newest, uh, your Destiny series is also out in ebook omnibus as well. Oh for yes, fans. that's right. the The Destiny omnibus, um, which I think is the definitive edition of the Destiny trilogy, because I was allowed to re-edit and polish it up a little bit. Excellent. Uh, is going to be out very soon in an ebook edition, uh, which I think is retailing at half the price of you know buying the original three books in paperback. So not only do you get it for half what you would have paid originally, but you get the best possible version of it, and you get it in a searchable ebook format. So definitely pick that up. Uh, if I have any new projects or big new announcements, they will of course be on my blog. They'll be on my Facebook page, and they'll definitely be in the Twitter feed because I am nothing if not a shameless self-promoter. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good thing, though. Well, David, thank you so much for this. We really appreciate your time. I know that uh, you've got some uh, poker guys waiting for you, uh, Keith being one of them. I got some poker, and I got some scotch. Excellent. What are you drinking tonight? Tonight I'm drinking, uh, actually it's not even scotch, this is uh, Willet's Rye, kind of spicy, it's 110 proof. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's got a lot of spice, and although it's 110 proof, it doesn't feel like 110 proof. It's really kind of surprisingly <laughs> smooth. Um, Excellent. So, so that's what I'm sipping right now, and I'm going to go back downstairs and lose some more money to my friends. Well, you have a good night, and thank you so much. It was great talking to you guys. Thanks a lot. Well, Matthew, that was a really fun interview with David there. And, you know, the volume of work that he's produced for Star Trek and the the way that his work has impacted the Star Trek universe is such that I feel like we could have done an entire show about Vanguard, an entire show about Gold Equations, an entire show about Destiny. And, and I would have loved to have talked more about his scripts from DS9 as well, because uh, we didn't mention the name of those scripts during the show. But uh, one of them was Starship Down, but the other one was It's Only a Paper Moon, which is one of my favorite episodes of DS9. Yeah. Um, David, you can tell, you know, really has a way of, you know, if you read his books, he can write action, he can write the death of billions of, you know, sentient beings. Uh, but he also has a way of really writing um, character. And uh, with you, uh, I cannot stress how much I love uh, It's Only a Paper Moon. Um, you know, to take a character like Nog, who, you know, starts off the uh, show by being a thief, <laughs> you think yeah, he might right. just be kind of a very side character and, and become somebody that's so emotionally impactful and, and really deal with um, war in that way um, and seeing the impact that it has on the, the everyday soldier. Uh, I thought it was excellent, and so yeah, it, his work is is um, right now um, I think one of the standards in, in Trek literature, um, and he he has literally changed that universe, and he's done it twice now, uh, and so you know if you haven't read Destiny, if you haven't been into Trek books, this you know get Destiny, get that omnibus uh, that we were talking about. It, it comes out. Um, when we're recording this, it's next Tuesday. Um, and so that would actually be, um, the 15th, um, 
his omnibus of destiny comes out you know buy that ebook get into that and just keep on going you you won't be sorry i'm going to pick that up actually i have the paperbacks but as he mentioned he was able to go in and edit and make some changes to tighten up the story i'm very interested to see how that plays out so uh, definitely picking that up yeah. for for my ipad well, uh, I guess we should get everyone out of here because, again, it's, uh, these, these shows run very long, but I, I think they're very fascinating. And there's not a lot of places online where you can go and, and hear straight from the authors in such depth. So uh, I hope everyone has stuck around to the end here and, and enjoy the show. So let's go ahead, Matthew, and tell people where they can find us if they want to share their thoughts on the show, on David Mack's work. You can go to trek.fm slash contact and leave us a message. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks, and your message will come to Matthew and myself. You can uh, also find us on Twitter under username TrekFM. And Matthew, what if people want to find you personally? Yes, um, well, if you'd like to follow me, the easiest place uh, to do that, one, TrekFM, obviously, uh, book reviewer for the site, um, as well as um, all over Twitter. Um, My username is MattRushing02, so very simple. Um, follow me, please. Give me an at reply and let me know you're following me. Love to talk Trek books, obviously, uh, as we talked about in the interview. Huge Deep Space Nine fan as well, but really like all of Trek. And so uh, let's talk that or, hey, um, talking football, of course, right now. Um, going to go after we record now, watch my 49ers hopefully beat the Green Bay Packers and some sports ball. Um, so, yeah, talking about all sorts of things. Excellent. Well, uh, if you want to talk football and Star Trek, you can follow me as well. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's Brian with a Y. And I'm very happy that my, while we're talking about football and sports ball here, my Crimson Tide won another national championship. So, uh, and Matthew's gloating because uh, his Aggies are the only team that beat us this year. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Which I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I think that makes us number two if we beat number one. (laughs) So... I, I think you may have a strong case there. All right. So again, everyone, thanks uh, for joining us for another Literary Treks. Hit us up on the social media. Say hello. We'd love to talk to you. And uh, we'll see you next time. So until then, enjoy your books. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one. <laughs>